You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. This is now our third look into the story of Esther. And we're finally going to get to the character that this book is named for. But before we read scripture, I want to caution you that we don't read it through spiritual eyes in a religious way. That, what I mean by that is there are good people, there are bad people, be like the good people. No, the way we should read scripture is this. There is Jesus and there are sinners. That's how we read the Bible. And so as we look at it today, you're going to meet some folks, Xerxes, whom we actually have already met, and then Mordecai, and finally, Esther. But they all have failures, faults, flaws, and we're going to look at how God interacts with their life. And as we stated last week, the entire first chapter is consumed with King Xerxes, Xerxes the Great. He should be called Xerxes the Awful, but they call him Xerxes the Great. He is the Persian king. His Hebrew name is Ahasuerus. His Greek name is Xerxes. We pick up the story in chapter 2, and we read this. Later, when King Xerxes fury had subsided. Now, it took this guy four years. Four years after losing his temper and divorcing his wife, he wakes up one morning listening to country music. And he's got no one to console him except these two people, Jack Daniels and Jim Beam. And he's totally depressed. You get the picture. The guy is just hitting the bottle. He's at the end of the road. Uh, He's not doing well. Also, during those four years... He sought to increase his empire by conquering the Greeks, but to no avail. Once his fury subsided, again, this is four years later from what we read in chapter 1. He remembered Vashti, okay, that was the queen that he sent away, he deposed her. He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. So why did he send her away? Why did he divorce Vashti? Because she told him no over something that he wanted her to do, which was wrong. He could have repented. He could have saved his marriage. He could have kept his wife. You know, you always have a choice. You get to keep your spouse, you get to keep your sin. He chose to keep his sin and lose his spouse. After that, the next verse, then the king's personal attendants proposed. So here are those, those wise guys again. Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai. This is the next verse, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women and let beauty treatments be given to them. Oh, we've got a great idea. (laughs) Let's go to every sorority and just pick out the most beautiful women. Verse four, then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king and he followed it. 
He is in this depressed, despondent, discouraging place. Have you been there? Just that bad day when it, when it all collapses and closes in on your life and you have no one to blame but yourself. Bad decisions, foolishness, pride, selfishness, whatever it was that got you here, you've done it to yourself. And let me say this, we all get into those places because we're all sinners. And when we do, we are particularly susceptible to bad counsel. So be careful who you confide in. Be careful who you receive counsel from, especially when you're in a vulnerable time. So this great King Xerxes, who is ruler of the entire Persian empire, some 3 million square miles, multiple nations, multiple languages, multiple people groups, the most powerful man in the history of the world to his day, the richest man on earth, He's sad, he's depressed, and he gets bad counsel. How did he get into this position? How many of you want to know how he got into this position so you can learn from his mistakes and let him pay your dumb tax? (laughs) Three things. Number one, those who chase glory always get the misery. Those who chase glory will only get the misery. Up to this point in the story, what we have seen from King Xerxes is that he lived for his own glory. Here's what we know about the guy. He sits on a throne. He calls himself the king of kings. He calls people to a banquet that he is putting on so that they can feast in his presence, toast to his honor. He wants his orders obeyed. He wants women brought to him, and he wants praises sung to him. He lives for his own glory. Look, we are made to glory. We are made to praise. We are made to worship. But because of sin, we glorify or seek to glorify ourselves. It's about my fame. My money, my pleasure, my reputation, my wants, my hurts, my longings, my needs. And the world should acknowledge my glory and serve my glory. And we end up in misery because the glory is not fitting for us. God alone deserves the glory. The glory is intended for God alone alone. And those who chase glory for themselves end up in misery. And we read that time had passed, so four years later, not only in that time has he lost his wife, but history tells us through the Greek historian Herodotus that he also lost a war. You see, he wanted all the glory, He wanted to be the ruler of all kingdoms of the earth. His father, the great King Darius, had established this empire that Xerxes has inherited. And his father had one blemish on his military campaigns. He had sought victory over Greece, but failed. So Xerxes decided, I will assemble the greatest army in the history of the world to this point, And we will march from Persia, which is modern-day Iran, 
to Greece. We will conquer the Greeks. Therefore, my glory will surpass even my father's glory. The problem was he too was defeated. Number two, the second mistake that he made that got him into this position is that when you don't turn to God, you turn to someone to replace God. Xerxes doesn't say, man, I'm a sinner. I need God. Instead of turning to God, he turns to some single guys for advice. He basically walks into a fraternity and says, man, bad day for me. What do you guys think I should do? And the foolish counselors say, what you need is a wife. You need a woman. That's what you need. That'll fix it. Some men and women still think this. I'm miserable. My life is a failure. I'm not following God. It's all falling apart. I need a woman. Or a woman will say, I need a man. No, you don't. You need God. And what happens is our relationships suffer and they fail because we try to hand to people the job description that only God can fill. Never leave me. Never forsake me. Never fail me. Always help me. People fail under the weight of trying to be God to us. His whole life had collapsed. He lost his wife a war, he's humiliated, he's despairing, and he wants a woman to fix it. And the third mistake that got him into this position, and this is very brief, when you use everyone, you don't love anyone. When you use everyone, you can't love anyone. The men are chasing these women, choosing these women based on their looks alone. Xerxes is going to choose his wife based upon her beauty and her sexual performance. Back to our story, verse 5. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew. Well, first of all, as a Jew, he's not supposed to be in Susa. He's supposed to be in Jerusalem. A Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. Son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. So he comes from the line of King Saul. Who has been carried, so Mordecai, his family before him, carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother, so this is an orphan. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him, that is Haggai, the one who was in charge, and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. Now, special food means not the Jewish diet that they were supposed to follow from Old Testament times. He assigned 
to her seven female attendants, selected from the king's palace, and moved her and her attendants to the best place in the harem. Now, she isn't going to tell them that she is Jewish. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. First of all, Mordecai. He is appearing 52 times in this book. He is believed to be buried in Iran. So he is an actual historical figure, yet he is a man living far away from God. Let me explain. In the book of Daniel, what happened was God allowed a king, Nebuchadnezzar, you heard his name in the story. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came in and conquered the nation of Israel as a consequence for their refusing to follow God. They were disobedient. So God allowed Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to come in and capture. Nebuchadnezzar conquers them, deports many of them to Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. This story is part of Daniel. And then another king comes along who's not a worshiper of God, but he believes that no one should be slaves, so the Bible commends him. It's one of the few commendations in Scripture of an unbelieving but good king. His name is Cyrus. And Cyrus makes a decree that God's people should be free to leave Babylon. Leave Babylon and return to Jerusalem. You see, God's people had been promised that land since the time of Abraham, some 1,300 years earlier. And they were there where the temple was and the presence of God would dwell in that temple, the temple that Solomon had built. And they would worship God and be among the people of God in the presence of God. So to be far away from Jerusalem was literally to be far away from God. But now they were freed, freed to go back to Jerusalem, and many did. You read about that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Those two books contain the story of the people as they returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple. Did everyone move back? No. Mordecai's family was one of those who didn't go back. The question is, should they have? Yes, because Jeremiah gave a prophecy on behalf of the Lord that God's people in Babylon were to leave and go back to Jerusalem, and not all did. So Mordecai, his family before him, were part of the disobedient people. We might go so far as to say that his family was part of the rebellious people of God. They didn't want to walk with God. They didn't want to walk with God, toward God, it's as if his family didn't want to worship God. He and his family remained in Persia where they would be compromised and somewhat worldly. For how many of you, that's your background? He wasn't an atheist, but he likely didn't tell anyone he believed in the God of the Bible. And he even told Esther, hey, don't tell anyone that you believe in the God of the Bible. Their faith is secret. They've been disobeying the Old Testament. They were eating food they weren't supposed to. 
engaged in holidays they weren't supposed to, living where they're not supposed to, doing things they weren't supposed to. And if you could ask them privately, hey, do you belong to the God of the Bible? Yeah, we do, but just don't tell anybody that we belong because we're compromised. For how many of you, that's you? You're like, I'm not an atheist. Are you living for Jesus? Well, I'm not living for Jesus either. I believe in God, but the evidence wouldn't hold up in court if you examine my life. That's Mordecai. And here he is. He does a good thing. He adopts Esther, his cousin. But he can't stop her from going to the Persian bachelorette auditions. Is he worried about her? Yes. He checks in on her every day. So you get the idea that Mordecai is like, I hope she's okay. He's looking through the gate. If he can't, you know, I, I, I want to see her. Is she, is she doing okay? What's going on? But he doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything. And with that, we are brought to the principal character of our story, Esther. Her name appears 55 times in this book. She's an orphan. She's been adopted. She's likely in her teens to early 20s. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. Esther is her Persian name. Now, here's something interesting. I don't want to read too much into the text, but she has two names. The text mentions both Hadassah and Esther. Which one is she? She's both. She's got a Persian name and a biblical name. She lives in the world, but she's also devoted to the God of the Bible. She belongs to God. So I would say she's a, a little conflicted. She belongs to God, but she doesn't show it publicly. She belongs to God, but she's living far away from him. She belongs to God, but at this point, we would never have seen her pray, open a Bible, worship God, or repent of sin. There's no indication up to this point that she has any relationship with God whatsoever. How many of you know people like that? You're not sure where they stand. Well, they say they believe in God, but I don't know. They don't live for God. I don't know where they stand. For how many of you, that's your story? See, Esther is a complicated character. <laughs> so are we. We don't always know where she is, what's clear. So what's going to happen? Xerxes holds an audition. Esther is in the harem at the spa. She's got her number. She's in line. Her night is coming. The one night with the king. We begin back our story. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. I bet you could smell her coming from a few miles away. <laughs> and this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. Are they going on a date? No. 
It doesn't start with dinner and tell me about your family. What's your favorite color? Do you even know how to read? (laughs) Nothing. Where does it start? At bedtime. He's like too many other guys that are like, well, let me just sleep with you. Then I'll find out whether or not I want to get to know you. So you see this, a year of preparing. There's, there's a line, if you will. I don't know how many women, but let's just, let's just say 400. 400 women every night for 400 nights. Maybe she's number 327. She's got a date on a calendar. If you please the king, you become Miss Persia. If not, you at best go back to live in a nice place in the palace, never to marry, never to have kids. Your life is plush, but pointless. The story continues. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abiel, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. We don't know what that is, by the way. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now, the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. She won. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yes. Last verse. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet. This is now the third one that we've seen in the book. For all his nobles and officials, he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. They hadn't had a queen in four years. Here she is. He's picked a new queen. Now everyone's going to get to meet her. The media has shown up. Everyone shows up. It's a national holiday. Everyone's happy now, right? Xerxes lived for his own glory and ended up in misery. He's still living for his own glory and causing others misery. I tell you, I've got, as a dad of two daughters that I love with all my heart, the thought of them competing for a man, performing for a man is devastating. Obviously, God has blessed them both with godly men in their lives. Esther wins, but it is a tragic victory. Now, I'm going to spoil a little bit of the ending for you. By the end of the book, Esther, way down deep, is a godly woman. She stops being passive and starts being active. She starts to speak for herself instead of letting others speak for her. She starts to swim against the culture and not be so worldly. You see, there's a guy named Haman. You're going to meet him in a, in a couple of weeks. He was like the Hitler of the day. All he sought to do was to wipe out all of God's people. And Esther stands up, and she is brave, and she's bold, and she risks. Now, the problem with the way that the book of Esther is written is that the story is told without sharing feelings, thoughts, motivations, intentions. It's all facts. 
In addition, it doesn't give us any divine perspective. God never speaks. A prophet doesn't show up. God is never mentioned in Esther. And if you go to other books of the Bible, they never mention Esther. So there's no commentary in scripture on the book of Esther. And for the first seven centuries of the Christian church, there wasn't one single commentary written on the book of Esther because everybody looked at it like, well, we don't know what to make of it. It's it's like a landmine. Let's just walk away and we'll read another book of the Bible. And that has caused many to see the story of Esther as an example of moralism. Moralism says there are good people, there are bad people. God loves good people, not bad people. God uses good people and not bad people. If Esther was loved and used, that means Esther's a good person. Well, then that's a worthless book. If the story is God only loves and uses good people, that's a worthless book. Because that means the story is I've got to make myself good. I've got to be my own savior. I've got to straighten out all that I've made crooked. And worse yet, if you've made it crooked, it can't be straightened out because all you've done is something as a bad person. God doesn't love bad people. You've done bad things. God isn't going to use you because you've done bad things. (laughs) And that misses the entire message of grace. That God loves the undeserving and the ill-deserving. And God uses the undeserving and the ill-deserving. And that's us. And every character in the Bible, because they're flawed like us, except Jesus, of course. So here's Esther. She has a dual identity, kind of in the world, kind of in God's kingdom, kind of sinning, kind of obeying, kind of spiritual, kind of not spiritual. She's conflicted. For how many of you, you're like Esther? Yeah, I've broken some commandments. I've slept with somebody or somebodies. I've hidden my Christian faith. I've kind of got a foot in both worlds. I've lived a life that is complicated and and conflicted and compromised and inconsistent. If that's you, and I know it's me on, on occasions, don't you find great hope in the story of Esther? God takes messed up, perverted, rebellious people, people who aren't walking with him, people who are disobeying him, people who aren't close to him, and he gives us grace and favor, and he chooses us. Wow, that's the hope. You see, like with Esther, God walks with you even when you're not walking with him. Esther's not going to the synagogue or the temple. She's not reading scripture. She's not praying and worshiping and tithing. She's not walking with God, but God is walking with Esther through the subtle hand of providence in the circumstances of her life. And even when she makes bad decisions or decisions are made that put her in bad situations, God is still working it out, working with her, working on her. How encouraging is that? Some of you say, I've not been walking with God. The good news is God has been walking with you. 
He's right there. He's not far. You may say, well, you don't know how far away I've walked from God. Let me be very clear. Our God is a committed God. No matter how far you think you've walked, our God has been right there with you the whole time. All you've got to do is turn around. He's right there. At this point, Esther, her people, God's people, they're waiting for a greater king and a greater kingdom, a savior, a deliverer, and everybody and everything is yearning and longing and leaning toward the coming of Jesus. So get this, like Esther, Jesus comes from the line of God's covenant people. Like Esther, Jesus grew up far away from his home, his heavenly home. Like Esther, Jesus grew up in a sinful world filled with temptation to compromise. Like Esther, Jesus' identity was unknown in his early years. No one thought of him as God. Like Esther, Jesus was adopted by an earthly father. His name was Joseph. Like Esther, Jesus was an unlikely choice for royalty. Like Esther, Jesus stood up against evil rulers of his day. Like Esther, Jesus saved his people from death. Except Jesus is the Savior. The whole world has been waiting for. The good news is, when we go out and invite people to this king and this kingdom, we are assured, we are guaranteed that they will be treated by him with love and grace and affection and favor and kindness. He's not a God who brings shame. He's a God who takes shame. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the world's Savior. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.